Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, coming at you another Saturday morning right here on the MTR Radio Network, Pass Ball Show. Of course, lots of things to get into. I got some solid interviews planned today. In a little while, we'll be speaking with former Mets catcher and Phillies catcher Todd Pratt. Um, I also have an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher Mike Bilecki, who pitched for the Cubs and the Braves over the course of the 80s and 90s. So lots of different things to get into. First thing I want to jump into and start speaking about is the uh, the Yankees Red Sox game for last Sunday night and if you're a baseball fan I think you really had to be tuned into the game and this could be whether you're a fan of the Mets whether you're a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers you know whether you're out in the central the central part of the country or out on the west coast you had to appreciate baseball at its best and whether the New York Yankees are independent race or not it's something that only the next couple weeks will determine if the Yankees could go out there and continue to win, you know, on a pace of about 7 out of 10 over the next couple of weeks, then you could consider themselves back in a race. But that's not the point. The point is that as a baseball fan, you want to see games that involve everything. And anytime you turn on a New York Yankee-Boston Red Sox game, you get more than you do during a Major League Baseball experience. There, there, there are games you're going to be at if you're a New York Mets fan or you're a Philadelphia Phillies fan. You go to a game, you're going to see things that you've never seen before. You're going to go out there, and if you're rooting for your favorite team, you're going to see a game where the team's going to have everything click for a day. You're going to also see games that don't go your team's way. And you're going to see a little bit of everything. Yes, you'll see that great pitching performance. You'll see your guy hit a couple home runs. But there's something about the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox rivalry that has gone on through the history, really going back to the 60s. And remember, before that, you remember the Red Sox winning a pennant in 46. Uh, before that, not, not being a factor since they last won the World Series in 1918. So we had a lot of years from 1918 to 1946 where the New York Yankees were very good and the Boston Red Sox weren't. Uh, you know, you had the Red Sox of 46 that won the pennant, and of course they became more competitive really in the 60s, 70s, and, you know, really later on in the two, late 90s and 2000s. But there's always been 
that rivalry between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. And it's, it's one that even if you don't have a side, even if you're not a Red Sox fan or a Yankees fan, you enjoy as a Major League Baseball fan. And it couldn't have been any more evident than in that Sunday night game on ESPN. ESPN knows this. That's why every time the Yankees and Red Sox play a series, uh, you know, weekend series, the, they always have the Sunday night game. You think they know that it's, it's ratings? You're going to get a lot of people that aren't Yankee and Red Sox fans that are going to watch it in addition to just about everybody that is a fan of the Yankees and Red Sox. But looking at it from this perspective, that game had just about everything that you wanted to see. You know, you had, you know, Ryan Dempster and his vendetta to try to get at Alex Rodriguez. You, we could get into that all you want. Uh, you know, whether Dempster's a hypocrite, you know, because Poppy Ortiz is on his team, because Manny Ramirez and other guys have used steroids and played for the Boston Red Sox when they were winning World Series championships. You could say that, fine. But that's an element that's added to the game. Ryan Dempster comes up, Alex Rodriguez is batting, throws the ball behind him, throws two pitches close, and then hits him in the back. Obviously, he was throwing at him. With that, you have Joe Girardi going on his tirade, and probably one of the times that you saw a manager get emotional and go nuts, and you actually justified him for every reason that he was going nuts for. And it was a situation where it wasn't necessarily uh, the the Yankees' organization representing the Yankees because you know that A-Rod is at odds with the Yankees front office yada 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 there's probably players that play for the New York Yankees that don't like Alex Rodriguez but the bottom line is they all wear that same uniform and while they're on the field they're going to support each other and you saw that when the players came off the bench and the bullpens came in and there was the thought that they could go they could go toe-to-toe and fight over it if they're going to fight over Alex Rodriguez then obviously they're not, they're, not gonna, they're not in a situation where they're turning their backs on them. So that goes on. Obviously, Joe Girardi gets thrown out of the game. And, of course, Alex Rodriguez comes up. And, and listen, you may not say this was a clutch home run. This wasn't the, you know, the, the two outs in the ninth inning down by two with two guys on home run that wins the game that you're going to lose. But I'll tell you, the momentum of Alex Rodriguez's home run, he hit off of Ryan Dempster to dead center field, was something that the New York Yankees took with them. And it's something that has to be respected if you're a baseball fan. And you know what? Even as much as Boston Red Sox fans might be pissed off, they might be out there, you know, calling A-Rod all these names, telling him he did steroids like nobody else, nobody that ever wore a Boston Red Sox uniform ever did it. As a baseball fan, you enjoyed what happened the other day. And to me, the results of the game couldn't have mattered any less to me. Whether the Yankees won that game, whether the Red Sox won that game, I, I could personally care less. If the Red Sox held on and won, I feel the same way as if the Yankees won like they did. But Alex Rodriguez's home run, his ability to take it to another level, instead of just sitting there and fighting Ryan Dempster and staring him down and talking to him and you know charging him out, he did one better. He had a home run in a big spot that led the Yankees to a big comeback victory and a game in it which they absolutely needed. This team needed this game more than it could have imagined. And that's why there was no retaliation. You hear a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe the Yankees didn't care that much about A-Rod because nobody threw a ball behind a Boston Red Sox player. That person could not be any more ignorant to the situation that was going on. The Yankees and Red Sox split that series. You know where the Yankees rank in the standings. They're chasing not only Boston, but several teams that are ahead of them in the wild card race. They got their ace, CC Sabathia, on the mound. Sabathia is pitching. You know what, if it probably was up to CC Sabathia or if it was a different game, if it was a game that the Yankees did not need as much, 
I'm sure Sabathia retaliates and hits either Ortiz or Ellsbury or somebody else to get even. But warnings had been issued by the dugout, by two to dugouts by home plate umpire Brian Onora, which led to, of course, Girardi flipping out and getting himself ejected. And, you know, that was a time that you needed to get yourself ejected for your team, for your player. And Girardi did all that right in that spot. But the Yankees were in a spot where they could not retaliate whatsoever. This game meant enough to the New York Yankees that they needed to win this game, regardless of what happens in between them. And Ryan Dempster had an opportunity to take his shot at Alex Rodriguez like he wanted to. He went out there and he did it. And he knew probably in the back of his own mind that the New York Yankees probably weren't going to be foolish enough to do anything about it. And if they were, shame on the Yankees. If CC Sabathia goes and plunks David Ortiz and Ortiz charges the mound and both of those players are ejected, then the Yankees lose. Because the Yankees lose their best pitcher in a game that they absolutely must win. So there's no way the Yankees could win. And Dempster knows that, listen, hey, maybe the Yankees are stupid enough to retaliate and get their best pitcher thrown out of the game. The one thing that I didn't get as a baseball fan, and like I said, I, I am not partisan to either the Yankees or the Red Sox, is why Ryan Dempster wasn't thrown out of that game. Now, Yankee fans would say, hey, you should throw him out after the first pitch. Yeah, that's a Yankee fan for you. You know, your typical homer. But objectively, he throws a pitch behind him, he throws two more inside, and then hits him. That probably was grounds for ejection. And Brian Onora did a terrible job there, and he ends up throwing out the wrong guy because he throws out Joe Girardi for sticking up for his team and his players, and the fact that he issued a warning after Dempster essentially had four shots to throw out Alex Rodriguez. Now, from the Red Sox perspective, if Dempster gets thrown out in that spot, Probably looks bad for them, but doesn't look anywhere near as bad as it would have if C.C. Sabathia retaliated and got himself thrown out of that game. And, of course, that game ends up turning out in the Yankees' favor, a bases-clearing triple by Brett Gardner. They end up holding on to win, mowing the ninth, and they beat the Red Sox in that game, winning that series, which is something that's very big for them. Moving forward, obviously, there's games against Toronto. There's games against division rivals that they have that they got to start winning. And am I going to say that the Yankees are in the pennant race? I'm going to tell you this. The Yankees are not out of the pennant race. Now, if they have one of those ridiculous comebacks like they had, remember, 1977, they came back against the Boston Red Sox. They were down a significant amount of games, the Bucky Dan home run, the whole thing. It's happened before. And if you're the Boston Red Sox, you say, man, you know what? I hope this thing could just settle itself out. I hope the Yankees could fade away. I hope we, as the Boston Red Sox, could go out there and win enough games that it's not even an issue coming down to the latter part of September. And the Red Sox, let's be honest, they're the better team. They have a they have a they have a very good offense. The Yankees' offense is a lot better than it was, but the Red Sox, top to bottom, still have an advantage over the Yankees. Now, if Alfonso Soriano keeps hitting like he's he's been hitting, if Alex Rodriguez steps it up and all of a sudden becomes the Alex Rodriguez of four or five years ago then maybe it's a different story. Maybe you're looking at the offenses a little differently. But I, I would give the slight advantage to the Red Sox offensively. Starting pitching, let's be honest, the Red Sox are a lot deeper. They give you five guys that give you more than a, a, a gentleman's chance of winning a baseball game, led by Jake Peavy, who they acquired from the Chicago White Sox in the deadline deal. There's no question that the Yankees starting pitching, which has been one of their strengths, still has CC Sabathia, who is not himself. Still has Andy Pettit who hasn't pitched like he did at the beginning of this year and the end of last year. 
and outside of Hiroki Kuroda, does not have that number two guy that's going out there and stopping the show. Phil Hughes has been Phil Hughes. I'm not going to say he's been terrible because he really hasn't been terrible. He's been Phil Hughes. You watch Phil Hughes go out there and you know what you're going to get out of him. Probably about six innings, three, four runs, a couple home runs he's going to give up just about every start. But you know what you're going to get out of Phil Hughes. So to say he's been terrible, eh, listen, I understand Yankee fans are upset with Phil Hughes. You'd like to have somebody out there that gives you more of a chance, that somebody that's more like Hiroki Kuroda, somebody that could go out there and pitch seven innings, give up a run or zero on a consistent basis. You're not going to get that with Phil Hughes. And Ivan Nova has pitched very well, despite his hiccup in, against Toronto. He, he, is, he has stepped it up and given them a little more depth in their rotation. So maybe the Yankees offensively, with the guys that they got, with Alex Rodriguez, with Soriano, with Ichiro hitting a little better. Of course, Robinson Cano is there. The offense looks a lot better than it did. Maybe they could start picking these pitchers up, and maybe the Yankees could win some 5-4 games and play the 700 baseball that they have to to get back in the pennant race. In my opinion, it's unlikely, though. And not only the fact that they're chasing Boston, who I think is a better team, but they still have to chase Tampa Bay. They still have to chase Baltimore. And if we're talking about wild cards, they got to chase Texas and Oakland and Cleveland and Kansas City, which I know they're on the level of Kansas City and Cleveland right now if they win a couple more games. But there's too many teams for this team to chase to make a legitimate October baseball scenario a reality. And listen, I mean, it would be a nice comeback. It would be nice to see them play the 700 ball that they have to. Can they do it? Maybe. But even if they do, you're going to have to tell me that Boston's going to have to step back and play 500 ball or less. That Tampa Bay is going to have to take a step back and play 500 ball or less. Baltimore, who has not been great over the last couple months, has to play 500 or less baseball. And those are just three teams in their own division. And we're talking about the wild card. You got to talk about Cleveland. You got to talk about Kansas City. You got to talk about Oakland and Texas, whoever's not going to win that Western division. And you're talking about too many teams that cannot get hot. And if the Yankees are in a situation where Boston and let's say Tampa and Texas all get hot, then the Yankees could win every single game and it won't matter. The Yankees have to make up ground. The Yankees can't just win, they have to worry about other teams losing. And you get to the part of the season where you, know, you start to have to worry about what the opposition does and what the other teams do in your league and not just worry about your own, your own part of baseball. This isn't a situation where the Yankees, uh, you know, are, you know it's, their, it's not their race to lose anymore. The AL East and a wild card is not the New York Yankees race to lose anymore. And you could make a case that the Yankees could go out there and play the 700 winning baseball that I think that they can and still fall short here. And if, it, and if they fall short, listen, it's on the next year. But remember what Brian Cashman and the New York Yankees did with their payroll allocations to this year as opposed to next year. You still talk about the $189 million luxury tax threshold that the Yankees are trying to stay under for next season. You know, it, it worked when they got Vernon Wells. It worked when they got Alfonso Soriano. It worked when they signed Hiroki Kuroda and Andy Pettit and Mariano Rivera to one-year contracts. It, it worked with Mark Reynolds and the guys that they brought in like Overbay and Ichiro and Travis Hafner. Are they going to be able to do that next year? It's going to be a very tough spot. You look at the amount of money that the Yankees will have to spend, and you know a certain amount of money is going to be put into a contract that's going to involve Robinson Cano's future with the New York Yankees. 
And some fans go out there and they say, hey, listen, the Yankees just can't afford it. It's not good for the team to bring Cano back because he's going to take a lot of money. And what are you going to do with the rest of the team? Well, my question is, what do you do if you don't bring back Robinson Cano? Who plays second base for the Yankees next year? It's not like there's a Robinson Cano prospect sitting in the minor leagues. You want Ian Kinsler playing second? I can arrange it. You want Emilio Bonifacio playing second base for the Yankees next year? It's possible. Omar Infante. How about that? Bring Freddie Sanchez out of retirement. You know, Chuck Knobloch, I think, would love to play for the Yankees at this stage of his life. The bottom line is the Yankees need Robinson Cano. And you can make a case that maybe Robinson Cano needs the Yankees, the legacy, everything that he's built up. He is that franchise type of player going forward. The days after Jeter, when he's done playing, and when Moe's done, and the, you know the whole uh, 96 to 2000 run of the New York Yankees is in the past, and we're talking about the new generation of the New York Yankees. Yes, Robinson Cano fits the bill to be that guy, to be that franchise player moving forward. And you, make, you can make the case that he is right now. But it's a situation. It, it could get a little dicey especially if the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Los Angeles Angels are involved in it, especially if there's some other teams that really do feel like spending some money next offseason. Because if Robinson Cano hits free agency, I'll tell you, Magic Johnson and Stan Kasten in Los Angeles with the Dodgers are going to be talking to him. They're going to be talking to him and his reps, essentially asking what is it going to take to bring you aboard. And odds are they might throw him the money. And what do you do then if you're the New York Yankees? Because then you're in a spot like you, you, you have a choice. Either overpay, give, you, give Cano what the Dodgers are going to give you, or walk away. And I'll tell you, you look at the free agent pool of what's out there as far as guys that are going to be free agents. There's Robinson Cano, and there is a cliff dive from what, what else in talent is out there. So it's not like the Yankees could go and let Robinson Cano go as a free agent and bring in a superstar free agent. They're not going to be able to do that. Is Shinsu Chu that same type of player? Absolutely not. Shinsu Chu is a good player. He, he would work for just about any team out there. You know, would play right field, maybe center field for some teams like the Reds. But, you know, here's a guy, very good on base percentage guy, a 300 hitter with some power, has a good glove, certainly would be a welcome addition to any organization, including the New York Yankees. But if you're going to sell me on an offseason that brings the Yankees Shinsu Chu instead of Robinson Cano, I think the expectation level of the New York Yankees is going to drop considerably. And, you know, just on to the, to the Red Sox-Yankee game. Listen, is, is that a game that could be pointed to as a turning point? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the Yankees go on a run and the Red Sox go on a decline, you could point to that Sunday night game where Dempster hit A-Rod and A-Rod hit the home run and the Yankees came back and won as being a turning point in their entire season. And, and, and you know, well, listen, only time will tell. Can the Yankees sustain, uh, you know, that type of baseball pace that they need to play to be back in the American League East and the wild card races? That's a good question. I think only time will tell, but I think their Boston Red Sox have a very good hand on things. And in spite of a bullpen that is without Joel Hanrahan and Andrew Bailey and Andrew Miller, they still got enough pieces there led by Koji Uhara, who I've talked about before, that they could certainly, you know, hang up on top of the American League Eastern Division. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of this hour. Be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. MTR Radio. 
Hello, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin, and you're rocking with the crew on MTR Radio. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. You can put this together, right? <clears throat> I like to tap that app on MTR Radio. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um. MTR. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. I love MTR Radio because of its uh, innovative direction. That's a bunch of shit. I love MTR Radio because they accept me. Ah, oh, you knucklehead. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Trending today on Twitter. MTR. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the program so far. I'm going to jump right into an interview I recorded with former Major League catcher Todd Pratt. And, of course, Todd started his career in the early part of the 90s in the Philadelphia Phillies organization, was part of the 1993 team that played in the World Series, won the National League pennant and lost to the Toronto Blue Jays in the series. Eventually came on to the New York Mets, and, of course, Mets fans know him for some of the heroics in 1999. The home run off of Matt Mante of the Arizona Diamondbacks, a grand slam single by Robin Ventura, which, of course, Pratt turned around and jumped on Ventura to keep him from going around the bases. But lots of different things we get into. Of course, he finished his career with several years with the Philadelphia Phillies before finishing off with Bobby Cox in the 2006 Atlanta Braves. So here's my spot with Todd Pratt. Hopefully you guys enjoy. Hi, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Todd Pratt. Todd, Todd, what's going on, buddy? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem, man. Hey, listen, man, you're just kind of going going through your playing career a little bit, and we will in a little bit. But first, you know, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what you're what you're doing right now. You're uh, you're a head baseball coach right now. 
baseball coach for West Georgia Technical College. Uh, I'm entering my fourth season. Uh, I actually am the first head coach and uh, start the program from the ground up. Um, we're a two-year school, and, and we play the Georgia Junior College Association. And uh, it's one, really one of the top uh, associations in the country for two-year schools, especially all the talent down here in Georgia. But doing great. Uh, you know, we were actually ranked last year uh, 18th in the nation early in the season, and uh, we just got scholarships. So competing with those scholarships and uh, building a program that quick early on has just been very uh, gratifying. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I tell you, you know, to have a chance to be the, you know, the guy to kind of uh, ha- have a lot of influence in that program, you know, getting to where it's getting to and where it needs to in the future, I'm sure has to mean a lot to you. Oh, definitely, definitely. And just, uh, especially from the ground up, designing to see it flourish this quickly. And, you know, this year we stepped into our fourth season and, uh, Got kids from Clemson, Tennessee, transferring over. Um, it's just uh, it's a great feeling, especially working with these young kids. Yeah, no question. Now, I, 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 young men, young men, I guess I should call them. <laughs> yeah, they kind of are. Yeah, one thing I do want to ask you about that, you know, being a you know being a two year school, do you feel like that affects you in the recruiting process? Uh, do you maybe not uh, necessarily have the access to, let's say, top players that would be looking to go to a four year school? tell you excellent points there i mean you know there, there's there are plenty of reasons why you know a, a player you know an up-and-coming player would want to play there for you know exactly what you said i mean three you know three years you got to stick around you know once you get in there so i think it's something that definitely makes sense most definitely and you know there's another reason i mean maybe a kid that's not ready for the for the school Yeah, it's very interesting, man. Once again, it's John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Todd Pratt. Now, Todd, you know, you, you obviously went through a lot from, you know, the time you were drafted in 1985 to really the end of your career. Now, let's start out by talking about, you know, you drafted in 1985 by the, by the Boston Red Sox. Talk about the process, you know, of, 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 you know, sticking around for, you know, is it five, you know, six years before you really got a chance to uh, get close to the Major Leagues? I just, uh, you know, a lot of things happened at a young age. I think there was some, uh, you know, I was very happy being drafted out of high school. I kind of knew I was going to be drafted. There were some, there were some rough years uh, early on in my career. A lot of uh, maturing that needed to be uh, done. 
job and not just a game anymore. And uh, I think it took me a few years to, to get through that and mature a little bit. And, uh, you know, the talent was always there. It just had to come out. And I think that's what uh, I, I was able to stick around for some years there in AA that I struggled. That I had the talent. They were just made for me to mature. And uh, I think the Boston Red Sox were holding on to me because I'm sure some less people would have been released by the time I had those years in double Um Just had a lot of good people that believed in me and I always felt that I treated people good and I, like I said, uh, I think everybody saw the talent, the arm, the power, you know, and uh, I probably had two or three second chances to be honest with you and it worked out well. Yeah, it definitely did. And I'll tell you what was interesting is in 1987, you got taken in a Rule 5 draft by the Indians, and you ended up not making the team. You yeah. ended up returning to Boston. Uh, talk, talk a little yeah. bit about that experience and what you know what that meant to you. It obviously had to be a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah, that, that was probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my career, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I was very highly talented out of the state league. Yeah, it ended up turning you know turning out well. You didn't make the team initially, but you ended up playing in the minors and kind of getting yourself up to uh, you know where where you are pretty much a you know a primary uh, person on the roster in uh, nineteen ninety three, yeah. and you, know, you end up yeah. going to the the World Series that year. Tell us a little bit about the nineteen ninety three Phillies and being part of it. It definitely had it been. And it was, it was, it was I mean, it was crazy. Hey, in your opinion, for all the guys that were there, who do you think was the craziest on that Philly team? Baseball's for crazy people, not stupid. So it's two different words. I think that's right. You got to be a little crazy to take it to the 
Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here, former Major League catcher Todd Pratt. And of course, you know, you end up, you know, with a couple other organizations with the Cubs a little bit, then with the, you know, with the Mariners organization, and then you you join the Mets, and it looks like the end of uh, what what you call it, the beginning of the 1997 season. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know your your, your emergence there, and you know it, it also like you know like a like a lot of your career path kind of showed. Um, it, it was kind of a little bit of a process before you end up kind of being the primary backup catcher for the New York Mets. Yeah, I, 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 first of all, I would like to thank the Mets organization for taking a chance on me. I mean, I was actually out of baseball when you mentioned the Mariners. I was released out of spring training in 96, and then in the winter of 96, the Mets were talking to my agent about a few pictures he had, and uh, he mentioned my name, and the Mets said, well, do you think he still wants to play baseball? And, uh, Yeah, and I tell you, you really hit a point, really, like you just mentioned, at the end of the 96 season or, you know, during that season, you know, where you weren't playing baseball at all. Did you consider giving it up at that point? Oh, yeah. No, I was already setting uh, the foundation for the wife and uh, son. You know, it's over. I mean, I need to get a real job. And uh, it's, it's, it's carrying on with life. I have responsibilities. Yeah, I'll tell you, and you end up, of course, you know, becoming a very integral part of the Mets team that, you know, makes the uh, the postseason in 99 and 2000. Of course, uh, a couple of your big moments, you hit that home run against Matt Mante of the uh, Diamondbacks to win the uh, the NLDS series. Uh, take us a little bit about back to that day and, you know, what it meant to you and kind of relive the moment here. Well, I just, uh, you know, yeah, the first game of the playoffs, uh, No question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Todd Pratt. Now, you know the you know the the uh, what do you call it? The NLCS, of course. Robin Ventura's grand slam single. I gotta ask you, what what possessed you to stop at second base and go and go back and uh, you know get Ventura after after that home run? I thought it was a line drive. And it was a line drive. 
like that, but it was just a little higher than I, than I thought. Um, that, that Robin had. But every time Robin would hit home runs, we used to call them helium balls because they would just fly, high fly balls that would just carry. Well, that one was a line drive. I thought it was in the gap. I said, well, all I got to do is hit second. This game's over. And he starts waving at me. I'm like, what the heck are you doing? But if you watch that video, there's about 15 other guys right behind him. So he might have not only that, he might have had a grand slam double. But he wasn't going to get a trip. I promise you that. Yeah, I tell you, and obviously in the history of the New York Mets franchise, that was one of the the, the better moments, you know. That that you know, and and it, it must have been you know amazing to be a part of that, you know. After after your time with the New York Mets, once again, it's John Pialium here with Todd Pratt. Uh, you know, you end up you end up uh, you know getting traded to the Phillies in uh, I believe two thousand one. Oh yeah, but, and then, you know my final year uh, uh, went to Phillies. You know, wanted to go another way. I we had the you know yeah no question about it i tell you what probably had to be disappointing uh, you know the braves had run off all those consecutive division titles and you know you get there to one year and you know they, they don't make it <laughs> uh the pitching staff was so young and our starters you know the Mets, you know were not going deep in the game so yeah it was, it was disappointing but uh, you know i was part of that and i didn't really play that well and uh And I tell you, for everything that the Atlanta Braves did over that you know decade and a half, I tell you, 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 you probably being part of that team in a locker room, there was probably no sense that that team wasn't going to the playoffs probably until the last day and when they were eliminated, right? Yeah, no question about it. I tell you, you know, as you as you end up, you know, finishing your playing career and you get into coaching, uh, what was the biggest influence in your transition into coaching, or what, you know, was was it a tough transition, or was it something that you knew when you were playing you'd eventually become a coach? Yeah, I, I, I've always wanted to coach, and I probably should have went the pro route, but you know, they say that you need to stay in the game right away, and I didn't because I wanted to take some time off and spend with my kids. Uh, and I might go the pro route. I, you know, had some discussions with, uh, you know, Phillies and uh, some brave people. Jim Gosey was over there in Philly at the time, and uh, you know, I sent my resume. So there might be another chance. Heck, I might be a staff member for the next one. I would love it. I love New York. Nah, good stuff, man. Listen, Todd, I want to thank you for having some time. Best of luck with with the coaching. And uh, listen, let's stay in touch. Hopefully, I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Hey, sounds great, Johnny. I love it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there. Todd Pratt, you know, one of the more colorful characters on the New York Mets teams of the late 90s and, of course, was a member of the Philadelphia Phillies teams that, you know, had Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, John Cruck, you know, Kurt Schilling, those guys at the 1993 uh, NL champion Philadelphia Phillies. So, uh, listen, I'm going to take one more break, but I'm only going to do 30 seconds. We're going to play a little, uh, little ball show for my buddies from Reach. Boy Meets Machine, the whole thing. They obviously put the song together for me. Give them a shout. And when I come back, we're going to jump into an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher John Wasden, and that's going to take you through the first hour. And uh, we're going to play this quick spot and be back in about 30 seconds. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to jump right into an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher John Wasden. And John Wasden was a first, uh, was a 41st-round draft pick by the New York Yankees. He declined and decided to go to Florida State instead. Became a first-round draft pick of the Oakland Athletics. Came up through their system. Had his best success with the Boston Red Sox. Was on the 1998-99 teams that made the uh, postseason. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed his spot with former Major League pitcher John Wasden. Uh, good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher John Wasden. John, what's going on, man? That's cool, man. Like I said, I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, man. Of course, you were yeah, you, know, you were drafted originally by the New York Yankees in 1990, and instead you decided to go to Florida State. Take us a little bit of back to that time and what was going through your mind and why you made the decision you made. Well, back in uh, 1990, I was in high school, and that was my senior year, and then had a chance to get drafted by the Yankees and really thought that that's probably what I wanted to do. Obviously, I had to play professional baseball, but um, looking back, being a 43rd round draft choice, uh, made the decision to go into Florida State. Uh, I was kind of already in orientation and, you know, kind of doing summer baseball. Back then, you were allowed to do uh, a collegiate summer league, and so I was kind of in that and really wanted to, to uh you know, kind of have some college years at Florida State, a team that I had grew up watching and wanted to be a part of and wear that uniform. And um, in hindsight, it was like basically if, you know, if you're good enough to be drafted out of high school on the 43rd pound, you know, what's the worst I could do is by going to college, you know? And so, and I had a little bit of a degree under my belt and, uh, well, some education, not quite a degree yet, but, uh, anyway, got a chance to play baseball. And then as it turned out, became a first rounder three years later. Yeah, so it ended up working out for you. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of this, the decision has to do with whether you want to go and, you know, get that extra education. And, you know, I guess it works differently for different people. Different people would, would say, hey, let me get a chance to play pro. You know, I, I'm going to do it right away. But you make a good point because, you know, if you, if you were good enough to be drafted when you were, well, listen, you have a chance to only get better while you're pitching in college. And it, it certainly worked out with you being a first-round pick. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you get from – Basically, you know, as the competition gets better, the coaching you know, gets a little bit more involved. So, I mean, it was just a, you know, you're developing. And, and that's what I do here in the minor league now, the coach. You know, we're developing players. And so, basically, I was on a development program. Uh, I was developed enough through my father and through my high school coaches to get me drafted. And uh, obviously, then going on to FSU, and they developed me a little bit further, a little bit more, a few more pieces of the puzzle. Uh, you know, and it just kind of goes that way, and you build it that way, and, um, you know, good things happen. Yeah, now, of course, you were drafted, like you said, by the Oakland Athletics. You end up going through their farm system. You make your debut with them. Um, did you consider your time in Oakland kind of another stepping stone for you? Like, you know, like you were talking about, you know, developing through high school and college. You know, the beginning of your time with the Athletics, was that kind of like, you know, you, were, you got – to a point where you're almost ready and ready to be a major league pitcher. Well, yeah, and in a lot of it, to be honest with you, most of the players in the minor league system, they all have the physical ability. They have the tools. They just don't know how to use the tools on a consistent basis. Um, And that's just the confidence. That's the ability to go out there and repeat something, if it be a swing or a delivery or how to throw a certain pitch or when to throw a certain pitch. Um, you know, that's all using the tools that you have. It's just learning how to use them, uh, you know, to your advantage. And so basically, 
you know, every day, even still, um, after 20 years in the game, there's something every day that I learn that you know, how to use the tool in a certain way or, or develop. Or um, So you're constantly learning. And if that's the case, if you're better today than you were yesterday, then you're achieving success. And so that's, that's kind of how I took my career. Absolutely. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher John Wisden. Now, you end up going through, you know, you get traded to the Boston Red Sox for, for Jose Canseco. Of course, Jose Canseco had a success with the Athletics. This was him kind of coming back there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your feelings about being traded for the first time and, you know, becoming a member of the Boston Red Sox organization. Well, when I was in the A's, that was my first full season. I really was looking forward to you know, kind of a, I guess, a long career as a starter, you know, a starting pitcher with the Oakland A's, and um, then when you really kind of when you get traded, you kind of see the business side of the of the game. Uh, you know, where the, the A's are wanting to kind of increase uh, attendance, and they wanted to reunite the old old time Bash brothers, uh, and you know that did kind of fizzle out. That's the same year that they traded uh, McGuire to St. Louis. So I went to the Red Sox, and you know, that kind of trade. What they had envisioned didn't really work out for them, you know, on the business side. But for me, it put me uh, into a situation where uh, being a young player, a uh, guy that really knew that he had the tools but really probably didn't believe in him, went straight into a, you know, a very hard situation as far as uh, the mental part of the game, playing in a town in Boston, very demanding, great fans great fans, but demanding. They want to win. They want to see players to perform. And, you know, for me, it was, I was up and down, kind of inconsistent at times there. So it was, it was harder, but I think it made me a better player uh, mentally, um, you know, more rounded player. So with another, I can look at it as another stepping stone to who I was as a baseball player. No, very true, man. And, you know, you did have some success. You were part of a couple good teams there. You know, Red Sox make the postseason in 98 and 99. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about your experience pitching in the postseason for the first time and, you know, th- through those couple of years with Boston. Well, yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, again, it was, I was a, a young player. I got a chance to play with a lot of great players who were also kind of up and coming. You know, the, the Veritex and the Derek Lowe's and the Nomars. And, I mean, the list goes on and on with the players that were there, you know, who made an impact on the game. But to be a part of a team like that and that chemistry and that uh, camaraderie you know, and winning in a town such as Boston. Now, we only got to the ALCS in 99, but the fact was is that, I mean, that was a fun, fun place to play, uh, exciting. And so, again, it, to be a part of that it was just so much fun. But, again, it, it's, you're just playing a game in front of people who enjoy watching, you know, Baseball that are very demanding, and they want to win all the time, you know. Yeah, very true. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with John Wasden. Now, 1999 was probably your best season. You know, you won eight games. You pitched in 45 games. Was there anything in particular about that season that kind of went right for you as opposed to some other season? Or was it just simply a chance of going out there and being part of, you know, part of the bullpen the entire season? I think it's probably being a part of the bullpen the entire season, knowing that, you know, you're out there and you're pitching, obviously. You have to pitch good. It's all numbers, you know. Um, but, yet yeah, going out there, but with that, there's confidence. And a lot of times when a pitcher has that confidence and he knows that people believe in him and they're putting him in situations to succeed, you know, good things happen. And 
And then basically for a pitcher, you have to constantly attack the strike zone. You can't try to pitch away from contact. You need to pitch to contact and, and attack the strike zone. And for me, I think I kind of had learned that. Maybe there was a hump uh, in that aspect, uh, allowing, you know, try to you know use your pitches in the strike zone and not try to avoid the strike zone. So we usually didn't have an account then and pitch the hitter in a better situation. But I learned that. And um, again, believing in myself, but also knowing that the team believes in me as well. And so that, that's a huge combination and a very successful one uh, for both parties when, when they can achieve that. No, very true, man. And I tell you, it must have been a little disappointing after you were traded in the 2000 season to the Rockies because it seemed at that point you had kind of established yourself as part of the Boston pitching staff. Uh, well, again, it becomes down, it comes down to business, and then you look at okay, we're going to give up this to gain this, and it was me and Brian, Shaw, Brian Rhodes and uh, Jeff Fry who went to the Rockies for. They were like Rick Crowshaw, Mike Lansing, and Arroyo, uh, 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 teacher, not Bronson, but the... Yeah, uh, Orlando Arroyo. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but... You know, it's, I mean, it's just one of those things to where, you know, there might be other things involved. It could be, you know, it could be money. It could be, hey, we're getting, you know, three good players for these players. Or it, it, it's like a chess match. And, and unfortunately, the player, a lot of times, until he gets, you know, several years in his career doesn't have much space out, so you're you're just kind of a pawn on the chessboard, and they're trying to make their team better, and other teams are trying to make their teams better, so it's just uh, kind of give and take, and it's kind of part of the game, but to be traded again to the Rockies, again, it was another fun adventure, another chapter in my life, and that's kind of how I took it, all the journeys that I went on, all the teams that I played for, I felt that it was another journey, another learning experience, what can I take from it, you know, and then also being who I was instead of being a guy that for me I felt that I was a very you know um, a good guy but I think it was 100% so I was able to kind of maybe either learn from the other coaches the other teams the other players or also be able a guy that might could teach somebody on another organization another team so you know I just kind of took it as that yeah, no, absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with John Waston. Now, you know, after the Rockies, you end up going over playing in Japan. Then you end up back with the Blue Jays, the Rangers, the Pirates, and then back in Japan. One moment kind of stands out. April 7th of 2003, you throw a perfect game for Nashville uh, against the Albuquerque team. And, you know, it turns out there must have been, what, maybe about 700-something people in the stands at that time. So, mm-hmm. so not not too many people got to experience, you know, something that had to definitely be special for you. Take us a little bit of back back to that day and what it feels like to throw a perfect game. Well, that was, um, you know, yeah, I was in the Pirates organization at that time. I had come back from Japan. Um, I had left. I left Baltimore. I was in Baltimore before I went to Japan after I had left um, the Rockies. And then, um, Basically, I was drafted, and then when I got drafted, I signed with my finally free agent, went to Pirates Big League Camp, really didn't pitch a whole lot there. Was sent out of camp about a week before finally camp was over. I made one start, and then I had like a three-inning start, and then I was going to be a fifth starter for the national team. And they told me I had like 50 pitches, you know, just to kind of work yourself into it, get yourself back into starting shape. And then uh, my time came, and that day, I remember being in the bullpen. Bill Knowles was my pitching coach, and I'm down there. Um, 
decide if I wanted to, to start over my head or I could I was just uncomfortable on the mound. And down in the bullpen, was very frustrated. And then as the game went on, I just kind of got into a groove. And, and it just happened to be that, um, you know, you, you guys start swinging and you're pounding that strike zone. You keep forcing contact and pitching to, you know, to make you guys swing. And as it turned out, we ended up, I was able to throw a complete game, a uh, perfect game. On with 100 pitches, with 15 strikeouts, but uh, I only had one three-ball count. So there's there's where I think the key was is just three pitches or less. That's the philosophy that I like. That's the pitch philosophy that we at the Oakland teach. That's what I teach when I do lessons. Three pitches or less. Make something happen at three pitches or less, and positive things will happen in the course of a game. And that's basically what we did out there that day. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the whole uh, the whole quick out thing. You see, it's actually becoming uh, you know a lot lot more a lot more talked around around baseball. It's not just a couple organizations. I think most organizations in Major League Baseball are kind of uh, talking about that because obviously it helps out with pitch counts and stuff like that. You get an out or you know you get contact in three or less pitches, then obviously it allows a pitcher to have an opportunity to work longer in a game. It absolutely allows the pitcher to work longer in the game. You're going to get. Um, you're going to save a bullpen, you're going to save your pitch count, but also, too, you're not allowing the hitter to sit in there and time you for a lengthy at-bat. You're not having to show him three or four or five or six pitches when he's just sitting there timing you, wait for something up in his own. You attack him before he has a chance to kind of really get, you know, figure you out or get his timing down, and that's all it is. I mean, pitching and hitting is a pitcher is supposed to disrupt the hitter's timing, and if you make it that simple, and you go about it that way, and you keep the ball down the strike zone. You know, I mean, the Braves back in the 90s, that's all they taught. You know, down away, down away, down away. Why? Because that's, that's a hard pitch to hit. You keep the ball in the biggest part of the field, um, and you, you go out there and you force contact. And, and that's that's basically what, you know, my philosophy that I use throughout my career, and that's what, you know, I teach today. No, that, that sounds great, man. And listen, before I let you go, why don't I, I throw you a plug real quick for you know the baseball lessons you teach and you know, anybody that's interested maybe in your area that uh, will want to give it a look. All right. That'd be awesome. Thanks a lot. All right. Listen, John, I want to thank you for having some time, man. I hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care, John. Yep. Bye-bye.